Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Ruel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make the second half of life even better than the first. In an age when health care is driven by specialization in technology, Dr. Stephen Post is a rare and remarkable blend of scientist and humanist, a best-selling author and transformative speaker who has inspired thousands of people with his acclaimed work on the human side of medicine. In today's episode, Dr. Post, who is director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassion Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University School of Medicine in New York, will talk about how we can educate our medical students and professionals to foster an approach to compassionate flourishing, supporting the healing and well-being of patients by uplifting the full measure of their being, including their sense of purpose and social roles. From the start, there's been a spiritual side to Dr. Post's work in caregiving, a continuous exploration of positive psychology, altruism, love, happiness, and the mystery of the human mind. He'll talk about his groundbreaking research into the dynamics of compassionate care of persons with dementia and their caregivers, as well as the striking phenomenon of unexpected lucidity of deeply forgetful people. And broadening on the issues of bioethics, Stephen will tackle the troubling issue of the widespread lack of public trust in medicine, as well as other sectors and, uh, and institutions in society. So now let's meet our guest, Stephen G. Post. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. It's a delight to be with you. It's a delight to have you back. For, for those of you who have been listening to my show for a while, uh, this is Stephen's uh, second appearance. He was actually, you can listen to his last show, which was a really good show, actually. It was uh, just before Thanksgiving in 2022. Uh, and you, uh, November 21st, and you can find it if you go to my website, roelresources.com, and click on the 45 forward tab, and just search for Stephen Post, and you'll find it. It's a great show, but we're going to continue with another great show. So, yes, um, indeed. Yes. So, uh, if you also, if you if you go to that post, you'll find, uh, you know, Stephen's background. He's got an incredible, uh, interesting background. Um, so rather than take a lot of the show describing it, I'm just going to actually jump ahead to to how how you came to Stony Brook and and to found this uh, Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics because this is really a different kind of um, enterprise and very truly unique. So tell us about this. How how did you come to to create this uh, center? Well, I came here from Case Medical School in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and uh, that was after 20 years uh, there. We had a department of bioethics, which was important. We managed the uh, complex quandaries of medical uh, decision-making uh, from an ethical perspective. Uh, do you really want to use a feeding pig in a 92-year-old a man with uh, dementia or not? That's mm -hmm. a quandary. It's a yes or no kind of question. Uh, but um, I wanted to do something much broader than that because I was interested in identity formation for the students around uh, compassionate care, uh, self-care, uh, equality in their view of the universe and the patient base. So this seemed like a good place to do it. They offered me an opportunity to build something, and the Center for 
uh, uh, medical humanities, compassionate care, and bioethics. It sounds like a lot, but it makes sense because we we have lots of time with the students preclinically to study the great literary works of medicine. Students uh, read the writings of Chekhov. They read uh, uh, When Breath Becomes Air. They read all these wonderful works about the illness experience. Mm. And the intention there is that hopefully this will continue to elicit from within them uh, empathic uh, qualities. Because mm-hmm. you have to have an image of a feel for a patient before you can really be empathic. Mm. And, uh, and so uh, humanities, uh, compassionate care, and then bioethics. Most of the bioethics consultations that people do in hospitals these days at Stony Brook, but every place, they go best if individuals just take the time to listen to the story, the narrative of their patients, mm-hmm. uh, kind of let that settle in. And with that sensibility, they can usually manage these very difficult dilemmas, some of which are life and death. Uh, they can manage them better. Right. So that's where it all makes sense. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I was happy to come here, uh, although it wasn't easy to leave Cleveland, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard to understand if you're on Long Island and you've been here all your life, but uh, but it's it's gone well and we've 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 been very successful. Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard to leave home wherever that you know you are, and I think especially after 20 years. But sometimes you have opportunities, and I think I'm, I'm happy that Stony Brook brought you there. Um, I, I think that um, you know it, it's having a, a feel like this. I think is is you know, we're, I, I, we're more than on the cusp. I think we're really into this, uh, the, the issue of caregiving in a, in a much uh, more uh, substantial way than years ago. But I imagine that um, I, uh, your students are, are probably both uh, grateful for this sort of course, but also a little surprised. Or are, they, are they surprised that when they encounter this? Like when you mentioned, oh, you're going to learn a little bit from Chekhov. They're like, what? <laughs> Not anatomy? <laughs> the anatomy yeah, of Chekhov? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, the language of science still predominates, and it must in this mm-hmm. environment. But that doesn't mean it should predominate the culture. Mm-hmm. The culture is still a matter of uh, care and compassion, uh, attentive listening, uh, kindness, uh, feeling connected uh, with your work and its meaning, and 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 being excited to be to be helping others. That's really what the culture is about. Uh, mm-hmm. So science doesn't provide that. It provides an awful lot of good information, and it's important that the students do well in their basic science courses. Uh, but uh, but uh, it's much more than that. Uh, you know, we need physician scientists but we also need physician humanists. Mm-hmm. And you can't really separate those things. You know, the great physicians, the greatest for always both. Right, right. And I think that there, there are several levels to it. I think in, in, in some cases, um, the compassionate care and the listening and the communication actually improves the medicine. Right, and you find out more about the patients, and by listening to them, that you know goes beyond the clinical observations. You know, you listen to their stories. 
Yes, Sir William Osler, considered by many to be the father of modern medicine, at least in, in North America, he said, uh, just listen to your patients and they will tell you their diagnosis. I mean, you can, you can ask intelligent questions when you're trying to get a differential diagnosis, and, and, and that's important. But he felt that actually if you just give the patient a feeling of safety, Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of uh, circle of trust in a relationship of compassion, and uh, don't interrupt them, but just listen and let them know that you're listening and maybe reflect things back from time to time. I, th I think you're saying this, you know. Uh, he felt that you would get more information relevant to a, a, an accurate diagnosis that way than any other way. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth to it. You know, people uh, think about a diagnosis. They want to get all the latest uh, printouts from a computer down the hallway. Mm -hmm. And that's important. You can get some great facts. But in the final analysis, you have to stop, look, and listen, mm -hmm. and be there with the patient. Stop, look, and listen, we call it. Right. S-L-L. Uh, right. Uh, and we try to build that into uh, the experience of the students and, and, and faculty, because otherwise they're just running around from point A to point B at the speed of light, and uh, there's no room sociologically, uh, chronologically, for them uh, to easily connect um, with, uh, with patients. So stop, just, you know, stop where you are as you, before you go into the room of a new patient. Breathe, it's somewhat mindful and meditational in a way, and take a deep breath. Then when you go in, um, look and listen. Mm -hmm. and, and that can make a huge difference in, in, in terms of uh, avoiding medical mistakes because 70% of medical mistakes are due to premature diagnostic closure. That's probably mm -hmm. a new phrase for some mm -hmm. of your listeners, but it's, it, you know, it, it basically means, you know, you have to slow it down a little bit and be attentive and don't just uh, think that you've got all the answers because you've got a test in uh, a, a printout in your hand. Right. Right. It's, <laughs> it's interesting when you say stop, look and listen, you know, what I think of, you know, uh, just experientially is when I was a kid <laughs> crossing the street, that's what they <laughs> tell us when, when you wait, stop, look and listen, you know, and, but <laughs> the, the same three commands are, are important to, so you don't get hit by a car <laughs> or, you know, and I think, uh, you know, again, sort of the, the, those basic precepts work to avoid accidents, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so true. Yeah. So we enjoy what we do and the students come here actually, when they, when they apply, they get a nice brochure in the mail, uh, from our center uh, through the admissions uh, program. And uh, uh, we do attract an, a lot of students uh, because we have a history and a strength in these fields. Of course, there's a lot of great science that goes on here and a lot of great clinical people. Mm -hmm. And many of them are in fact uh, uh, physician humanists as well mm -hmm. as great sci scientists. Right, yeah. Now, how do you, um... How do you teach the students these values? I mean, I know that I was looking at the, you know, the your the center's website, and I mean, there are three basic components: humanities and illness experience, virtues, clinical ethics. Um, what's the process about, you know, in, instilling these values and observations and in, uh, in, in your students? 
Well, there are many, many ways to do this, and one has to be innovative and try to um, try to measure success mm -hmm. to, to the extent that it's possible. So, for example, in American medical schools around the uh, around the around all the United States, um, there is a problem, which is that uh, students come to these schools. Many of them are wanting to be empathic, and they have pretty high empathic qualities. But when they get into the clerkship year, where they're doing all their clinical experiences for the first time, they actually see a slight decline in uh, in empathy among mm -hmm. the students. I think it's because, again, you know, they're in a new environment. It's very time pressured uh, and they're picking up skill sets. And they're also seeing role modeling that's in general quite good, but not always evenly so. Mm -hmm. Billy Joel, world's been burning since the world's been turning. It's not that bad, mm -hmm. but it can get pretty, 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 uh, unimpressive at some at some points in terms of role modeling right um and role modeling is so important because that's how the torch gets passed from generation to generation it's not didactic mm -hmm. it's not downloading stuff from a powerpoint um and so um what we do is we uh we have all the students in every clerkship step out for just an hour an hour and a half um once or twice during a six-week block, and just small groups, so small groups of maybe six or seven students um, convened by somebody on the faculty who is committed to this activity and has some psychological skills. And it's in their camp, uh, and they're asked to talk about their best role models, and they can be very graphic about someone who took the hand of a patient and was just incredibly empathic and, and made such a difference. And the patient was so happy and so grateful and, and flourished in so many different ways. Uh, and that means tone of voice, facial expression, uh, word choice, all kinds of things. But then um, they're asked to reflect uh, on the not so great role models. And this is everywhere. It's not, I mean, every, every, every medical school has a mix. And, um, and, and so they talk about um, some things they might have witnessed that uh, kind of troubled them. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. when they got out to the parking lot and left them uh, wondering in their cars, you know. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I won't go into examples, but there could be any number of examples that I could just uh, uh, provide off the tip of my tongue here. Uh, and, and through having that, and then, I, then we asked them, so... How did you address that? Did you just internalize it and say, okay, that's not how I want to practice medicine. Mm -hmm. You can learn a lot from negative role models. Um, or did you actually proceed a little further and maybe try to try to have a positive influence on your learning environment? So one, one story that I sometimes draw on, um, and this is not Stony Brook specific, but maybe it is. So, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, a young guy who uh, is, is on his clerkship and he hears his team making a derisive joke about an, a highly overweight woman uh, mm -hmm. that they're treating. And uh, the team is, is laughing. You know, this is kind of thing happens in, in these environments. Sure. 
And the young man verbatim, he asked himself, do I want to laugh with my team? He thought, you know, if I laugh with my team, I will ingratiate myself mm -hmm. and maybe I'll get a better evaluation. Um, he said, no, I don't want to laugh with them. Do I even want to smile? He said, no, I don't even want to smile. He just stood there passively. And then a nurse, a wonderful nurse came along and put her arm around this fellow's shoulder and said, hey, I noticed how you handled yourself. It was beautiful. Thank you for being this way. Maybe you want to consider diplomatically, of course, approaching the team toward the end of the afternoon and telling them how you as a student experienced this. And the young guy did this. He, he actually approached the team. And he said, you know, I'm a medical student and I'm here because I think we need to be physician humanists. We need to be compassionate. We can't be doing derisive jokes uh, about, uh, quote unquote, whales, as they say. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the team was very responsive. It was wonderful. And they, they embraced this young guy. And they said, you know, thank you. We were really off track. We won't let it happen again. So he felt empowered. He wasn't just passively imbibing an uneven environment. He actually had a positive influence. Right. And, and it strengthened him. And, and so our, our study, uh, which appeared in academic psychiatry, shows that our students actually do not have that decline. Right. Um, it's not that they get more empathic in that mm -hmm. uh, heavy year of clinical experience, but... They don't decline, and that's a positive. Great, great. So, uh, Stephen, th this is great. I, I need to just take a quick break. Um, but, folks, uh, when we come back, we'll be talking much more with Dr. Stephen Post, the director of Set in the Center of, for Medical Humanities, Compassion Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. So don't go away. We have a lot more to talk about. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. 
Burrows and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, we press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burrows and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, because everyone can make money in real estate. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Dr. Stephen Post, an international speaker, best-selling author, and director for the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassion and Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. So before the break, we were talking about, really, uh, Stephen was, was talking about offering a story and, in a sense, talked about the, you know what we really mean about compassion and care in the, in the course of medical treatment um, and what that meant in terms of language. Um, you know, and um, uh, so one of the projects I mentioned uh, uh, during the break was called Project Muse, uh, this notion of joining humanity and science. And I just wanted Stephen to talk a little bit about, about that notion of uh, uh, really sort of a higher calling, you know, of, of this sort of um, education and, and practice. Well, it is in the broadest sense spiritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use a lot of positive psychology. Uh, we uh, we teach classes in positive psychology. I I teach a class with a whole number of uh, more advanced uh, upper class medical students. Uh, the Compassion Toolkit, mm. and it's uh, it's got some didactics readings it goes on for about a whole month and and meets three times a week but it's mainly about actual uh practices that have been cultivated around the country for example stanford followed us uh, we had this uh idea of a center for humanities compassion and bioethics stanford then developed a whole center for compassionate care and now ucsd University of California, San Diego has a compassionate care mm. program, and they're cropping up all over the place mm. uh, because people realize that, you know, e- even when you have the students reading uh, beautiful uh, uh, narratives about patient experiences, and that's very important, uh, you know, uh, when they come in here for the summer program, the introduction to medical school, we always have them read a great a great book Uh something that really brings them to tears and connects them with the experience of hope and distress and, mm-hmm. and, and meaning in a patient. Um, but, you know, ultimately uh, it's, it's more than that. They, they, they actually learn uh, to stop, look, and listen. They learn techniques of breathing when they feel that they're somehow getting on edge and about to react uh, to uh to a patient or a colleague. So this allows them to step back a little bit and respond instead of react. We actually have a whole uh, booklet of, of uh, ideal empathic communication. 
because there's so much violent communication, not here, but I mean, in the world. Mm -hmm. And they see that all the time. And it's so easy to get caught up in it. But what we do is, you know, we, we, we say, you know, it's better to sometimes ask a question than have a simple, too simple answer. A lot of times it's better to be indirect than direct. A lot of times you want to have attention to your tone of voice, to the fine details of how you connect with somebody. Uh, you, you, you want to be there in a, in a full sense. Uh, and we actually do exercises about this. We, we do what, what are called verbatim exercises. This mm -hmm. will amuse you. So a student will engage with a patient. And then we'll, after that engagement, write down in fine detail, without identifying anybody, of course, because of uh, confidentiality, mm -hmm. but in fine detail, uh, the nature of the conversation. So a patient says X, student says Y, patient says X, student says Y. It can be a whole page. It's like a small uh, one-act play. And you can even capture that, you know, family comes in with flowers or whatever. And then sit down with your colleagues, with five or six colleagues uh, uh, in your peer group. And you go over, you, 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 you read this through, and they're asking, so why did you say this then and not something else? Or why did you kind of veer away from addressing this particular concern? And what it does is it allows the student well, they feel like they're a little bit on the skillet, but it's it's, mm -hmm. it's 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 all very positive. But they have to really reflect on why they said what they said, when they said it, how they said it, mm -hmm. and um, they even do uh, simulated clinical interactions. And we try to um, we try to capture some of that uh, with mm -hmm. them. But this is the this is the way that uh, people in clinical pastoral care or in clinical social work learn to communicate mm -hmm. through these so-called uh, verbatim interventions. Mm -hmm. And um, I think they're, they're fabulous. Uh, now, of course, again, it can be challenging because you can feel like somehow, what was I not willing to talk about? What was I avoiding? Why was I a little bit mm -hmm. aggressive? Why, you know, what was going on there? And, and so it's very introspective. But you need to make people uh, aware of what they're saying and why they're saying it and how they're saying it and what they're not saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's an important concept and important uh, part of the treatment. And I think this is one of the things that uh, people are disturbed about today in medicine. I mean, they're um, they're they're feeling that they're not really cared for. That the medical care is missing the care component and. Um, I understand in some cases it's it's about economics. Um, and and yet it seems to me that this can be integrated. You know, I think that so, so the economics are that a lot of individual practitioners are getting, uh, they can't manage it. So they join practices and then those practices get bought by bigger practices. And so you, you have, um, you know, a medical corporation. Um, it just does seem though that within that, framework, you still can have doctors who, when they meet with you, um, <laughs> do more than, than just say, okay, why are you here? <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and I think there is, um, you know, you, you do feel like the early days of industrial 
uh, industrialization where you had these time motion experiments where you had to get a certain amount done within a certain amount of time and and a certain amount of pro you know product delivered and you come out and you say like okay i guess i guess um, i guess my test showed okay you know but i don't <laughs> i don't know that he really knows me at all other than my data um and so i think that this this i think it may be a while coming um and i think that there are a lot of countervailing pressures against doctors these days right i mean there's always the you know medical malpractice and you know insurance and all these you know um so it's hard it's hard but i i, I think this you know, adds a lot on both sides, patient and doctor. Well, we want our students to have compassion, even for doctors who are, shall we say, running on empty. Mm -hmm. You know, medical care, as you talk about it in general, it, you know, you come in for medical care. Uh, that means, you know, a shot in the arm, an x-ray, uh, you know, uh, you get your temperature taken. But it's really not care in the deepest sense. Right. So uh, we would like to see medical care um, more profoundly offered. And I think um, many schools have good programs uh, in the medical humanities. And, and, and I think many students actually, I find I've been in medical education now, oh my God, for almost 40 years, mm -hmm. Chicago, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 20 years at Case Western, 15 years here. Uh, that seems like a long time because it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think in general, um, the students have gotten incredibly idealistic about how they want to interact with patients. And they learn techniques about uh, incorporating compassionate care and communication into their daily practice. Uh, and there are things you can do. For example, in primary care, you know, you know there are a certain number of patients who they just want to get in there and they want to get the hell out of there because they're on right. the way to work. Right. They don't want any any nice interactions, particularly. True. True. Um, they're there, and so what you want, and they may take you know literally five minutes, and then they're out the door. But then you know you there are other patients who really need fifteen or twenty minutes, or even a half an hour, or an hour, and so if you schedule them later in the day, it makes sense because then you're not holding up all these folks who just want to get in and out. So there are different things to be done. And, and also people get better at uh, connecting with patients. Um, it's not just, uh, as one of my colleagues, uh, Jack Coolhand says, it's not just the time that's involved, but it's also the ability to be present. Mm -hmm. And you know, presence is almost an intuitive kind of thing, but uh, some folks can do a great, great deal in a very short time. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in Cleveland for, 20 years living in Shaker Heights, a wonderful inner ring suburb. And I used to interact with uh, the, uh, I used to interact with the Cleveland Clinic quite a bit. They did a study where they, uh, they looked at uh, patients who had had major uh, surgery on, on their hearts. And it, I, I'm sorry about that. That's right. <laughs> okay. Um, at the Cleveland Clinic, they did a study uh, to see if patients having undergone major open heart surgery uh, were getting out uh, quicker or slower, uh, and of course, you know, reasonably well healed. That's the mm -hmm. caveat, right? Right. And it turns out that the most important factor in determining 
when they would actually get out of the hospital was the extent to which they could self-report an empathic surgeon. Now, you could have wonderful nurses around, social workers, and all kinds of other people, but there was something about the primacy of that relationship between the surgeon and the patient. Because after all, you know, the patient is entrusting themselves right. to the OR room, and they don't know if they're coming out of that alive or not. Uh, so that uh, sense of the empathy of the, um, of the, of the surgeon made a huge uh, difference in terms of people getting out, you know, say, you know, 20% uh, sooner than they would have otherwise. But again, emphasis, well-heeled, okay? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. not just out on the street. And, and, and I think that tells you that, that, that um, um, uh, love heals. I mean, to put it in, a, in that simple sense, uh, uh, when people feel treated kindly, and, and, and so there's a difference between kindness and empathy. You know, kindness is like, you know, it doesn't take a lot of uh, conversation. You don't have to understand your patient very well. But at least you can give, you can have the, uh, the kindness of, of saying, well, how's things with your family? And, and, and how's this going? How's the job? Simple acts of kindness are easy to do. Right. And then there's empathy, which is a little more involved, because then you're asking, so um, tell me about, uh, this and 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 uh, did I get that right? And you're going back through a kind of reflective exercise, and then when empathy is in the context of suffering, then you have compassion. So I call compassion uh, the expression of uh, empathy, uh, affective empathy. It's not mm-hmm. just you know sort of getting the role modeling right and the wordplay right, but affective empathy, that sense of presence in the context of suffering. And some people, some patients, uh, some students, I'm sorry, and professionals aren't that comfortable around suffering. They want to head for the hills. Right, right. But, uh, and that's okay. People can be different. And Mm -hmm. and, and Mm -hmm. that to some extent will determine what they do with their careers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think everybody should be compassionate to some degree. Yeah. But, you know, we have students, uh, you know, one of the most empathic students who graduated last year, a wonderful guy who wrote a beautiful article in a leading journal uh, based on uh, uh, looking at kindness, at the, con- at the concept of kindness. He'd done a survey. He'd done qualitative interviews. It's a beautiful article. It got a lot of attention. Uh, he went into anesthesiology. And he's in Chicago now. And the reason he went into anesthesiology, he said many times, was because he felt that before patients go in for major surgery, they really need kindness. Because mm. they're, they're likely to be anxious. They're wondering if this is it, mm-hmm. what will happen. Uh, and uh, so you need an anesthesiologist who connects with people in a calming way that gives them some tranquility. And that would probably help them through the whole process. Right. By the way, stress, you know, as, as most people listening will know, uh, stress is, at least in the long term, is not very good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, in the, in the short term, it, it's fight flight. It'll you know, give you a burst of energy and you can run away from a crocodile. Right. right. Uh, but, uh, but if it's protracted and, and it's part of your, your longer term experience, it slows down wound healing uh, by about 10, 15%. That's not a controversial statement. Mm-hmm. It also um, uh, transitions metabolites uh, into fatty acids, which is bad for your vascular system. And now almost every neurologist I know uh, 
tells me that uh, they think stress is an important factor in the context of uh, uh, dementia, mm-hmm. because uh, studies show that people who are, uh, you know, regularly stressed out have what's called hippocampal atrophy, a little shrinkage of the hippocampus, right. which lays down new memory. Mm-hmm. So, so, so in that sense, in the in the in the broadest sense, um, kindness, empathy, compassion, they do heal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd like to pursue that a little bit more. We're going to come up with a break shortly, um, but I, I don't want to uh, uh, end our interview without going into a little bit more about your work with dementia patients um, okay. with respect to this, because I think this is an important contribution you've you've made uh, and continue to make. Um, you wrote a groundbreaking book uh, several years ago, and you followed up with the one. Uh, and it's something we don't know. We, you know, as much as we know, we don't know a lot about. It. Um, and that's that's the the troubling thing that and and the hard to accept thing because it's it's so difficult for so many families uh, to really understand. Uh, <laughs> we we are trying hard, but there's just so much we don't know. Um, so uh, I want to when we come back from the break, um, uh, let's talk about that. Uh, but we do need to take a short break. Uh, so when we come back, folks, we'll be talking much more in our last segment with Dr. Stephen Post, the director for medical for the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony University. So don't go away. We have much more to talk about. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host, keynote speaker, and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now, she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for the Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. 
To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Post, an international speaker and best-selling author, director for the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. Um, now, I wanted, before we go on, I just wanted to um, mention to folks, because sometimes we, we get uh, involved in our conversation and get close to the end, and I just wanted to, before we do that, uh, let people know, how do, Stephen, how do they find out more about the Center and about your work? Well, the center has a wonderful website. Okay. It's filled with uh, student papers and experiences and awards. Uh, We actually, as a center uh, and as a school, won the uh, most coveted award in medical education, Hmm. the Alpha Omega Alpha Award for Professional Identity Formation, Hmm. if if you will. And... uh, that only goes to one school a year, if that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a recognition that what you're doing is making a difference in shaping uh, the character and the uh, virtues of your students. Mm. And I think our curriculum is at least one. There are other good ones here and there, but I think ours is uh, leading the way in many respects. So it's a great website. It's uh, www.stonybrook.edu and then slash forward slash bioethics. Okay, good. Okay. And then for me, it would be Stephen with a PH, uh, com. Okay, very good. Okay, good. I wanted to get that in because you and I often get involved <laughs> and, yes. and, and we get to the end without uh the sign up. So that's, that's great. Okay. So now back to um, our discussion, um, talking about compassionate care, but particular with um, patients uh, or people with dementia, because this is something that is, well, it's increasingly important in our society. There, there are more, you know, there are greater numbers of dementia patients, uh, or rather people with dementia um, uh, because of longevity. You know, that's the, the, the upside and the downside is that as you get older, although it's not caused by age, the risk increases with age. And I think that um, one of your major contributions goes to to your basic um, approach, which is a lot of it's about the communication, about the thinking about the caregiving for these uh, people, not just the clinical treatments, which are coming I know people are working hard on it, diligent, but it's coming slow because it's so complicated. Yes. So talk a little bit about because you, you know, you, you have a couple of books, and the last one I I believe is the moral challenge of of Alzheimer's disease, ethical issues from diagnosis to dying, or uh, well, then, then there's dignity for deeply forgetful people, right? How caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease, um, and oh. and there are a lot of challenges. So talk about you know how your notion of compassion care fits with Alzheimer's. Um, well, both with Johns Hopkins University Press, which is a good venue for, for this particular topic. Um, dignity for deeply forgetful people, that's a language that may surprise some of the listeners. I do not 
much like the word dementia. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a language of decline from a former mental state, which is scientifically accurate. But it reminds me a little bit of the word retard. Mm. We don't call people retarded. We call them differently abled or whatever it might be. Um, so uh, when you think about the word dementia and you hear how it's used in certain clinical settings, it invites negative metaphors. Mm-hmm. Husk, gone, shell, empty, dead, you know. And uh, it can be very dangerous. Uh, the, you know, the, the Germans in, uh, in the 19, late 1930s had a program called Tiergestrasse 4, where they took people with dementia out of asylums and nursing homes 70,000 of them and subjected them to hypothermia experiments mm. and wow. literally froze them to death and then brought them back into these facilities and tried to warm them up in different venues at different radiant uh, temperatures. Wow. And uh, that was uh, so troubling uh, that it was stopped. But the same investigators took the hypothermia experiments directly to Dachau and Auschwitz and so forth when the Germans invaded Poland. Wow. And, and these were not people who were um, racially uh, 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 derided. Uh, these were, if you will, Aryans, people of the blood and so forth. Mm-hmm. But they had one thing going against them. They were deeply forgetful. Mm-hmm. So I view deep, deep forgetfulness as a very positive term in the sense that it encourages us to get closer to these individuals and to realize that uh, we can notice things about them. Uh, one of the key uh, uh, themes in, in the book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, uh, is what's called unexpected lucidity. Hmm. He just did a Gallup survey, national Gallup survey, uh, at some considerable expense. Uh, and what we found out is that 40% of uh, caregivers, primary, secondary, professional, have had very vivid accounts of individuals they thought were completely gone. But some with stimulation through music, maybe through art, maybe through the right interactions, maybe even through the fall leaves, uh, because they still have consciousness and they can appreciate uh, the beauty of nature. Um, But uh, these individuals would come back into themselves a little bit. And they could even, in some cases, converse. Mm. So that may sound almost peculiar to some, but but you have to take the time to notice this. And You know, in New York, they have, in New York City, they have something called the Unforgettables Choir, mm. where mm-hmm. caregivers and people who are deeply forgetful uh, practice. They actually have practices, uh, you know, of music that is familiar. Uh, to, uh, to them, and they do concerts uh, on a monthly basis. There's a Brooklyn uh, Center for the Memory uh, Disabled, and they do. They have Alzheimer's poets, mm-hmm. so you can bring in thirty or forty people uh, who are deeply forgetful. I would say, and they're not communicating at all with their loved ones. You know, their heads are down, they're kind of drooped, and um, then if a poet in the room with animation, with color, with life, reads some poem that this cohort would be familiar with, like, say, The Road Less Traveled, Mm -hmm. uh, or 
the mending wall, something there is that does not love a wall. Uh, I would tell you that 80% of these individuals will chime in unexpectedly. And, and it's not necessarily that they'll know the whole, they'll recite the whole verse, but if you, if you use this language appropriately, they will maybe uh, repeat, they'll, they'll recite a few words, some will recite a few lines, and some will stand up and actually um, give you the whole poem. Hmm. So, uh, and, and there's a wonderful guy uh, here on Long Island uh, who started an organization called Music in Memory. Right. And they did a, a video called Alive Inside of using familiar music to stimulate these kinds of returns to relative lucidity. They're fleeting. But for a few seconds after this stimulation, people can actually respond to rightly asked questions. Right. Yeah. And there's a skill in my in the back of my book, I have a very careful uh uh state uh, uh chapter on communication techniques. Mm-hmm. So you don't ask somebody, what would you like for breakfast? Because then you're putting them on the spot. They have to dig into their memory and come up with language. Right. But if you say, Would you like post raisin bran or an omelet they'll say oh of course an omelet right Right. so you have to use language in a way that cues them but people who get very very skilled at using language can break through and 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 do pretty well right so i have so many stories hundreds of stories of of, uh uh uh, people i I was at a nursing home in uh, chardon ohio with joe foley who was my great mentor and at Case Western, he did all the differential diagnoses of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and so forth for the National Institutes of Health years and years ago and was mm-hmm. a co-founder of the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, he was a great Boston Irishman who'd come from Harvard to Case Western. And um, we went out to a nursing home that was um, uh, really quite sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he... Um, he and I went into a special care unit for people with deep forgetfulness. And uh, we read the little bio sketch on the wall, which is always a good idea. Uh, so caregivers knew that somebody had a life, you know, uh, it's very humanizing. You, you know, so this was Jim and he, um, he'd had two kids and he had been, a, uh, uh, in accounting and so forth. And uh, he loved, uh, skiing and he loved canoeing. And so we went out into the main unit and there were a lot of, uh, maybe 20 or so people ambulating. Uh, and I asked the nurse, could you show me Jim? So she brought me over to Jim and I took Jim by the hand and we sat down and I used language wrongly. Mm-hmm. I said, Jim, how are your sons? And he was anxious and startled. But then I said, wait a minute, Jim, how's Zach? The name right. of one of his sons. And that cued him. And then he lit up and I'll tell you if joy was electric, the place would have been on fire. And I said, how's right. Luke? Same thing. Right. So if I use language to draw him into this, he came alive inside. It was beautiful. Right. And then, okay, here's a story for you. Okay. Quick there one, was, though. <laughs> okay. You, you know, those rag dolls, puppet dolls that sometimes mm-hmm. you give your daughter for right. birthdays. Right. On the floor in front of him was an old beaten up rag doll. It looked like it was built in or made in 1920. And um, he, he ambulated around and he actually picked it up and he took it over to the corner where there was a woman crying on a couch. Mm-hmm. 
and he placed it on her lap, and she stopped crying. And then I asked the nurse, so what's the story with that uh, puppet doll? And the nurse said, well, that was her puppet doll. And uh, a lot of people have, they may not have linear rationality, but they have symbolic rationality. They know that their life is connected with a particular symbolic object. So as soon as she had that in her, in her lap, she stopped crying and she started smiling. Mm-hmm. So there was a culture going on there. Right. And Jim was pretty emotionally intelligent. Right. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think that this does fit into your whole approach of compassionate care. This is the communication and understanding this. Uh, so part of it is the, the care. And I think the other dimension that, you know, that you've mentioned and, and why I think that, you know, changing the language or using the language of deeply forgetful is not just euphemistic. It's, it's, it's basically, it's what we know. It's what we know. Um, we don't really know what de- the demented behavior really is. What we know is that they're deeply forgetful, and we and and they're you know it, it could be for many different reasons. Um, but I think it does show you know a certain compassion and a certain and it's it's more effective. I think this kind of care actually helps people medically. Uh, well, there's there's so much more to talk about, but um, we'll have to leave it there for today, uh, Stephen. And come back and invite you back sure. on the show to talk more about uh, uh, bioethics and, and some of how that fits in. I think some of it for me is about humility and, and just, you know, what you've discovered is how much we know and don't know. Right. But uh, we'll save that for another show because uh, there's a lot more to talk about. But uh, let me just say that um, uh, once again, folks, if you've, uh, if you've missed my conversation with Stephen today, uh, you can listen to it as a podcast at voiceamerica.com. Uh, just search for my show, 45 Forward. Uh, you can also listen to it on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, our radio, or go to my website, roelresources.com, and just click on the, the 45 Forward tab and search for um, Stephen's podcast. Um, so um, with that, um, we're going to have to move on uh, to our next uh, week. Uh, but again, I want to thank you, Stephen, for a terrific show. Uh, much appreciated. Um, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Asher Rabinowitz. He's a veteran social worker specializing in substance abuse treatment, uh, which he employs a simple but not easy approach, which he calls the ABC method. You want to hear it. It's an interesting approach and actually deals with a lot of some of the communication issues that Stephen raised. So you'll want to listen in to that show as well. So until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.